Good to be with you. I was gone last weekend on a staff recruiting trip and was uh, so pleased to hear of how uh, Pastor Mark Job uh, blessed the congregation and um, thankful for God's gift to him. And So we thank the Lord for his good gifts and how he uses them to bless and nourish his church. I stand before you needing some grace today. I spent most of yesterday at St. Anthony's Hospital uh, attending a birthing class. <laughs> and for those of you that are um, maybe anticipating being pregnant or even getting married, I, would, I, I think it might just be better to be ignorant of the whole thing and, <laughs> and to just kind of discover it when it happens the way that all of our forefathers did for thousands of years. Uh, And it was especially tough last night because I was basically at the class all day, rushed here to the church, had to preach last night, and I just was, you know, my eyes were spinning, and I, I don't even know what I said last night, I don't think, in the sermon, because that's just something else, let me tell you. That is something else. It has been quite a week, hasn't it? It has been quite a week. We think about this past week and what has happened in our country. Uh, I'm sure all of us have been glued to the television and watching the events unfold in Boston with the marathon and the bombing and then the manhunt. And, uh, but then also in uh, Texas, and Mike mentioned both of these in, in his prayer, uh, but What a tragedy has happened uh, there as well. And, you know, I think for us as a country, we're grappling. And for us as individuals, we're kind of grappling. And as Christians, of course, we look at these kinds of things and we we can struggle to try to put those into a a category. You know, uh, in the one case, it was uh, apparently an act of terror. The other, it was industrial accident. Uh, So one was a man-made thing. The other was a, you know, accidental kind of thing. And in both cases, the result was largely the same. It was explosion. It was mayhem. It was death. It was uh, chaos. And um, leaves, I think, all of us pondering, uh, what does this mean? And no doubt, in those communities today, there are churches that are gathering just like this one and God's people getting together and they're trying to put together how did, what has happened and why has this happened. I watched the uh, manhunt on uh, Friday before putting this uh, sermon together. And, you know, just even that little part of what happened was really uh, something else. So what can we say about all of this? And here's what we can say. Christianity has an answer to these uh, national tragedies, international tragedies, uh, and personal tragedies that we all experience. And uh, the answer is that it's the same story, different chapter. It's the same story of humanity that has always been, uh, has always been true where you have uh, mayhem, and you have chaos, and you have hate, and you have murder, and the, the pain and the sorrows that flow from sin and evil that is present in this world. What's especially 
tragic as you look at it through the grid of the Bible is that God made us for so much more than this. He didn't make us for hate and murder. He made us for love and for worship. He didn't make us for divisiveness. He made us for unity. And this is primarily to be experienced with our creator. We were made for him and we were made in his image, made to experience uh, uh, beauty and to experience uh, joy and gladness far beyond what we can find in this world. I think of Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy and in the, at their right hand are pleasures forevermore. We were made for a kind of living and existence as image bearers that we, that the, we have a capacity for that or we were made with a capacity for that, but we live in a world where that is so uh, destructively uh, experienced. And the Bible gives a grand, oversweeping story of a God who creates, of a man who corrupts, of a Savior who comes and dies for sins, and someday of that Savior coming again to consummate history and to have a final victory over his enemies and to establish his kingdom and his rightful rule forever. And that is the grand drama, that is the grand story of which even this week is one little finite part of that overreaching story. I want to talk with you today about that story, but I want to speak to what is yet to come. First John is going to take us towards what is yet to come. So much of what we do in studying the Bible is looking back because we look back to the cross, we look back to the resurrection, we look back to the incarnation, creation, the covenants, Israel, all these things. But over and over again, the Bible wants us to look forward and puts out there promises about what the future holds for us that is intended to change the way that we live now, to give us hope in this life now, especially in times like this, uh, and to do a few other things that I'll be getting into. So our passage, as we work our way through 1 John, is 1 John 2, uh, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And we've already studied this passage from one particular angle, the fact that God has adopted us as his children. And that was... Uh, a wonderfully encouraging, I hope, truth for all of us. And I have found myself in my prayer times doing a lot more of this. Dada. Dada. An intimacy with our Heavenly Father that is encouraged by understanding His adopting love for us. So here's our passage for, uh, for today, beginning in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now remember, John is writing to 
a church that is reeling from a schism and a division that they had just experienced where some false teachers had arisen and were teaching and preaching a different gospel than the Apostle John. And they drew people to themselves and ultimately they left the church, leaving those behind suffering the relational break, but also confusion about what these guys were teaching and why their friends would leave and follow them. And so what we've seen in chapter 2 is that one of the main themes John says is, listen folks, you have to, and the word he uses is abide. You must remain. Do not leave the one true gospel that saves like these other folks have done. Abide, remain, persevere, hang in there, stick it out. It will be worth it. And he's given some reasons for that already. And in these verses here, John gives yet another reason why you and I need to abide in the one true gospel. And I think it's going to be an encouragement to you. And some of you maybe, as I read that, you're like, oh, this is going to be good. Indeed, it's one of the most wonderful passages that you're going to come across uh, in the New Testament. Now, what are we talking about? Why should we not quit? What is the motivation for abiding? And we find him giving it in verse 28. He says, when he appears. Again, in chapter 3, verse 2. When he appears. What is John talking about? What is he writing about? He is talking here about the second coming of Christ. The return of Jesus the King. The he there is Christ. The coming is his return. And this is a dominant theme of the entire New Testament. You can't read hardly anywhere and not find uh, the writers of Scripture talking about, writing about, thinking about the fact that Christ is coming back. In fact, it's mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. And there is only one book in the entire New Testament, more than one chapter, that fails to teach and talk about the return of Christ. And that book, by the way, is Galatians. And so we find in the New Testament, in New Testament Christianity, uh, very much an awareness and a consciousness of the, of the story, the big story, of Christ. Yes, we look back to the cross, we look back to the incarnation, we look back to the empty tomb, we study the Gospels, we see his life, we rejoice in the miracles and all the rest. But the Bible doesn't stop with what has happened, it goes on with what will happen. And lays that out for Christians as a strong motivation for not giving up on Christ. The best is yet to come. Now to make sure everybody kind of gets the return very quickly, here's, a, here's just a very quick timeline of the, of the ministry of Jesus. Begins in eternity past, we have creation, the incarnation of Christ. Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary somewhere around 5 BC. We have his death and his ascension, somewhere around 30 AD, he returns to heaven. God gives him the name that is above every name. He is at the right hand of God right now. And he is coming back when we don't know. And someday he is establishing his eternal future reign. And we will reign with him, the Bible says, uh, and share in his inheritance. This return is described in the New Testament as the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.8. 
His coming in the clouds, Matthew 24. His coming in his glory, Matthew 25. It will be unexpected, the Bible says. It'll be like lightning. Suddenly, he returns. And Paul writes to Titus and calls it the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Christ. And so we have these and many, many other descriptions of this return, including a very vivid one in Revelation 19 that I would encourage you to read later, which describes when Christ returns, riding on a white horse and coming with the armies of heaven. And on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's a passage that gets the... You just read that, and if Jesus is your Savior, you get, you get pumped reading that passage, describing the return of Christ. In fact, the whole Bible ends with these words, even so come Lord Jesus. At the end of special revelation is a call and a longing for the return of Christ. Now remember, he's writing, wanting to encourage his people to not leave, to not give up, to not doctrinally and in their faith walk, to quit, but to persevere. And he adds now to all the things that he says by bringing up the fact that Christ is coming back. And we see in verse 28 that he says, listen, you want to be those who are going to have, it says, confidence when Christ returns and not be like those, it says, who shrink from his coming in shame. And it's not hard to think about those, who's he talking about here? He's talking about these guys, the the false teachers and these people that had left and had compromised the one true gospel. It will be them that when Christ returns, that will not be a happy moment for them. But it is possible for us to have a faith and a life and to live this Christian life in such a way that when Christ returns, it will be a glad day for us. And a day where we will see him and we will stand before him confident because we had remained faithful to him. Now I want to focus on, in this message, on chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Uh, verse 29 of chapter 2 is basically repeated in, in chapter 3, verse 4 and following, so we'll just save that for later. I want to focus in on these two verses. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. God, I pray that you would help this verse to rise in our hearts and in our understanding. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illumine this truth to our spiritual sensibilities that we might understand and apply what you have said. And I pray, Lord, it would be a great encouragement to every brother and sister here. I pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we studied verse 1 and we saw what I called an astonishing truth. And that is that God does not stop at the amazing salvation that he Accomplished. That was a horrible sentence. Let me try that again. We talked about God's adopting love and the fact that God didn't have to adopt us to save us. He could have done all the things that he did. He could have sent Jesus uh, incarnate in the flesh 
Jesus could have lived a perfect life. Jesus could have been arrested and flogged and crucified and died as a substitutionary atonement uh, and resurrected on the third day to conquer death and gone to heaven. And the, sa- the same kind of gospel could have been preached. If you believe, your sins will be forgiven. You'll be justified. You'll have a right relationship with God. You'll have eternal life. And we talked about how God could have done all of that and stopped at the point of restoring what sin had broken. And that we maybe would have had a kind of status like the angels in heaven, which would be far more than we deserve. And if that was all that God did, we would spend eternity rightfully praising him. Thank you for forgiving. Thank you for Jesus. We'd sing all the Jesus songs. We could say it's all about him. We could, we could do all of those things rightfully and appropriately. God didn't have, he could have stopped right there and it would have been an astonishing thing that he had done for us. But that in adoption, God goes a further step, a huge further step, and doesn't simply save us, but now to express his love, adopts us into his home, into his family, and gives us a status that we will have forever as sons and daughters of God. We will not be merely like the angels. We will be above the angels. And we will enjoy that exalted, honored status forever. And I told you that you're going to come up to me someday in heaven and you're going to say, you know what, this is far better than anything I could ever have imagined. But the one thing I had no idea is what it means to, to be adopted. And we talked about how many theologians believe it to be the one thing that you have to understand in order to understand salvation. So let's let that adopting astonishing truth live on in our hearts. What John says here now is almost like that message where God could have stopped with the salvation thing, but he didn't. And he adopted us as his children. God could have stopped there. But now we have, if I could just call it, it's the cherry on, on top of the whipped cream. This is, the, this is like the, the, the coup d'etat. This is this amazing thing that God does. And it's described in verse 2. The best is yet to come. It's kind of like these TV commercials, you know, where they go, but wait, there's more. You know, and, and we'll throw in this, uh, you know, cleaning supplies. But wait... There's more. I could have entitled the sermon, but wait, there's more. Indeed, there is much more awaiting those that are in Christ. Well, like what, John? Like what's coming? What's it going to be like someday? We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Let's take that slowly. When he appears, when is that? That is the second coming. We shall see him. Who are we going to see? Christ. What is the fruit of that sight? We shall be like him. Or we shall become like him. Let's walk through those. We shall see him as he is. Theologians call this the beatific vision. We will call it the greatest moment of our entire lives. To see Christ as he is. Notice that it does not say that we will see him as he 
was. We're not talking about the expression or the, the, uh, the kind of... Remember, I asked for grace. We're not talking about the weakness. The weak Christ, if I could say it that way. We're not talking about the first coming weakness where Jesus is a baby and Jesus is tired and hungry and Jesus uh, lives in the weakness of humanity as he walks this earth. We're not talking about uh, the, the weakness that we see in him. And I say weakness now, I'm just talking about not sinful weakness, but just inherent human weakness where he uh, is uh, apparently uh, at the whim of Pilate and that he is under the judgment of the Jews who cried out against him. We're not talking about the kind of weakness that we see in him being flogged and being crucified and ultimately dying. We're not talking about that first coming. We're not talking about the lamb. We're talking about the lion. Okay, we're talking about who he is now. And one of the issues we have, I think, is that in our minds we think about Christ and we've seen the movies and we see the paintings and uh, he, is, he, is so, uh, he is so human. He is so normal. He is, Isaiah says, there was nothing uh, majestic about him that made us, drew us to him. He looked like an average Joe. Thousands of people saw Jesus the first time he was here and it didn't do anything. The seeing of him didn't do anything. In fact, many of them ultimately didn't believe in him. We're not talking about the picture of Jesus that we have in the Gospels, in that sense. It is not who he was. Because we know that when Christ came, the true identity and the true majesty of his glory was cloaked in a body. Right? He was a stealth savior. Now some people knew who he was. The demons knew who he was. And we know that, for example, in Mark chapter 1, when he cast them out, they would cry out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He'd say, quiet, quiet. But everyone else missed it, right? The Pharisees, they saw him, they thought he was a charlatan. The crowd saw him and they, you know, followed him for a while and then they left. Even his disciples saw him, saw the miracles, ran away there when he was arrested. The closest picture that we have in the entire Bible of what John is talking about is what is known as the transfiguration of Christ, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain. And Matthew tells it this way, that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, And his clothes became white as light. In that moment, this glory that had been his, and this honor and this majesty that had always been his as the Son of God, now cloaked in a body, probably in there just wanting to explode, right? There it is, all hidden in that body. At the transfiguration, what Jesus did is for just the briefest of moments, he let that inherent, eternal, infinite worth shine. He let it out. And 
The disciples who saw it described what that sight was like, and the closest thing they could come up with was that it was like staring at the sun. Now, by that sun, I don't think he means the cloudy winter northwest Indiana day. We're talking about that midsummer day when you're heading west, and that brilliant sun is exactly on the horizon, and you're driving right into it. And you know what that's like, where you're pulling the shade down, but even with that, you're like, man, I can't wait for this to go all the way down. I can't see anything. That illuminated brilliance was what the disciples I mean, they just, it was like the sun. It wasn't the sun. It was like the sun. It was the closest thing that they could come up with. And to realize that no movie special effect can capture this because what they were actually seeing was not light like the sun. They were seeing glory. And the glory of God, that Shekinah glory, is an expression of holiness. It is an expression of worth. It is, it, it has an inherent divine power to it so that whenever it shows up in the Bible story, people fall down in terror. And indeed his closest friends, Peter, James, and John see this light show and they fall down in terror. He is the glorious son of God. His glory was cloaked until he ascended to heaven. And once he got to heaven, God the Father gave him the name that is above every name. And that glory, cloaked while on earth, now began to radiate from him in the full expression of all that he is. And right now it is shining forth in the glory of heaven. What must that look like? Well, the Apostle John was given a revelation in Revelation 1 and described what he saw in seeing Jesus this way. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Friends, this is Jesus. This is our Savior. This is who we sing to. And when you pray in his name, you are pray- this is who you are praying to and through to the Father. This is our Christ. This is our beloved one. He is not the weak Savior in human weakness uh, portrayed in the Gospels. He is now God, Son of God, glorious God. And he is in heaven and he is coming back. All right? He's coming back. And Christian, you are going to see him. And that sight of the glorious God is the beatific vision. It is and will be the greatest moment of your life. He's coming back. It'll be your great moment if you abide. 
Oh, young people here. See some here. You grow up in the church. How many young people grow up in the church, hear messages like this, go away to college or get into the world and walk away? You don't abide. You don't want to miss this. And you don't want that moment to be shame. You want it to be confidence and glory because you love him. He is coming back. And we're all going to see him. Okay, We're all going to see him. And that sight, John says, will do something to us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Now here's where I think so often uh, people, we think about the future or even the return of Christ. And we get out our timelines and we want to argue about the dates. And we try to calculate or figure out. And what does this mean in the symbolism of Revelation? Or we ask questions like, you know, what's it going to be like in heaven? You know, what, what do I look like in heaven? Am I short? Am I tall? How old am I, you know, in heaven? What version of me is going to be there? Or we wonder what it's going to be like, you know. Uh, will we play golf in heaven? Which actually is a, that's a fine question to ask. The others, not so much, but that's a good one. But the really important questions are not height or, you know, these other things. It's not what it will be like, but what we will be like in our personhood. Christ came to restore what was broken. And what was broken was us. And we still deal with this brokenness. It is all around us. It explains the events of this week. And we can look and say, oh, that's brokenness and that's brokenness. But we have to look in the mirror and realize that I have brokenness within me, right? I deal with, in my conscience and in my my soul, I deal with the reality that I am a sinner and that I... I have all these internal contradictions and, and I deal with my old nature all the time. Even as a Christian, I deal with this struggle with sin and, and the, the sorrows of this world and, and the reality of death coming. Even as a Christian, we deal with these things. Yes, we've experienced new life in Christ. And yes, our consciences have been cleansed. And yes, we know there's forgiveness of sins. Um, we are different people as Christians than we used to be. And we know that because the Spirit of God is working in our life. And for some of you, the fact that you are even sitting here in this service is like, uh, what has happened to me? Like, you know, if my friends even knew that I was going to church on a Sunday morning, they would, they would, uh, they would freak out, Right? Uh, you hear people that say, oh, I always thought if, the, if I ever darkened the door of a church, the whole place would collapse. You know, that's the kind of pagan I was. And yet God works in our life. And we, we have, don't we? We have change. To be a Christian, there is change that, that happens. God gives us a new heart and we have new desires and, and we begin to obey the Lord. And we do this imperfectly for sure. But Change happens. Christian, aren't you a different person now than you were before you were a Christian? Right? We, we were this way, and, and now we are this way. And we are this way, filled with contra contradictions and compromise. But we're different. And the Bible describes the change that God 
works in the life of a Christian as sanctification, the process of becoming holy and obedient in the way that I live. And this is like three steps forward, two steps back at times. Don't you feel that way? And even I've been a Christian for so many years, and at times I get attitudes. I had one yesterday where I'm like, I thought I was godlier than that. But here all of a sudden, boom, it comes. I'm like, oh. Can you relate? It's a hard crowd to get an amen from, especially on a point like that. But I'm different than I was. I am progressing in my sanctification. Romans 8 says that God is in the process of making me into the likeness of Christ, and that means his attitudes and the way that he lived and the priorities of his heart. I'm battling against idols. I'm trying not to love the world. I want to love God and love my neighbor as myself, and I do that totally and perfectly, but the fact that I even want to is a sign that the Spirit of God is in my heart. And so here we are, kind of clunky, progressing in our sanctification, getting up a little bit, going back at times, our our lives look like a crazy stock up and down, up and down, up and down, but generally going in the right direction. And then guess what happens? We die. We die. Incomplete sanctification. Nobody is perfect. Even Paul writes that. Not that I've attained these things, but this one thing I do, I press on towards the mark, Philippians. Should the Lord tarry, we die. Sanctification works in progress. Incomplete. Some people really incomplete. But when he appears, we shall be like him. And what that means is the greatest day of our life. And I want to explore that. What does it mean that when Christ returns, we are like him. His, his appearance will, will mean the instantaneous completion of our salvation. Everything that is lacking and all that death has done to our body, all of that suddenly and dramatically by the power that God alone has will be completed. Boom! Just like that. In two categories that I want to talk with you about. First of all is our bodies. Okay, let's talk about our bodies. One massive part of what is yet to be revealed. In fact, I think I didn't focus on that the way that I would want to. Can I backtrack a second? You're like, oh, I don't know how great this is going to be. Look, look, look. Look at verse 2. What we will be has not yet appeared. So what we are is is great. Love being a Christian. Love what God has done in my life. Love what this all means. But we are not, we haven't, we have not yet realized what it what we're going to be. So we're happy with where we are, generally. It's great. But God has in store for us things that are beyond our imagination and beyond what we can even conceive right now, which is maybe why he doesn't give us that much detail about it. It'll blow our minds, okay? So I want to make that clear. You are not yet what you're going to be. Here's two categories, the body, the body. 
Christ's resurrection means that God wants to save your body. That salvation is about our spirit and our soul, but it's also about this body. Our bodies matter to God. Jesus died in a body. He was resurrected in a body. He was the first fruit in that resurrection, the Bible says, which what that means is, is that like your tomato patch this summer in your garden, when the first tomato comes out, and if it's healthy, it's a great sign that there's a lot of other tomatoes that are going to come. And Christ's resurrection was the first fruit of many who would come. And Paul makes the argument in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that, that our bodies will be like his body. His post-resurrection glorified body. So I got good news for you. You're getting a new body. Yeah, that thing you looked at this morning in the mirror. And you stared at it and you're like, really? You're going to get a new body. God wants to save that body. This body that is getting old. This body that is getting wrinkly. This body that isn't what it was when it was... 19 years old. In fact, if you're 19 years old right now, you take a good look in the mirror and enjoy what you see because it is all downhill from there, right? In fact, you want to know how downhill it is? Look at mom and dad. That's what's coming for you. We are all becoming our parents. That body of yours, Christian, I don't want any non-Christians claiming this promise because it doesn't apply to you, but Christians, this body, God is going to redeem and glorify it. When Christ returns, that will be resurrection so that for those of us that are dead, We will see him with resurrected eyes. Here we come. We're resurrected. And the first thing we see is the glorious son of God. That sounds pretty good to me, right? Those of us who are alive, uh, when that happens, suddenly, instantly, transformation of our bodies. Here's how Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be, there it is again, we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And I just, I'm putting that out there for you as an encouragement to not give up on Christianity. If you say, I think it's in the party scene, what promise does the party scene have for your future? And if you think it's in education, what future does your education promise for your body? Every educator I've ever known is dead in the grave now. There is no promise that philosophies of man and education, money, power, pleasure, pick your other thing other than Christianity that you might decide, I think I'm going to go over here. Does that have a promise like this for you? I think all of those, you end up, in the, you end up dead in the grave. 
But Christianity holds out this glorious truth that we preach over the caskets of our brothers and sisters who die. And we preach over in in terms of hope and encouragement to one another as we lose loved ones. That this is not the end. And that body that goes down in the grave by the power that God alone has will resurrect Abraham's body wherever that is now just dust. Will resurrect Moses' body wherever that is that is now just dust. And Peter and James and John and all the saints that died in the faith, those bodies will be resurrected to glory. And Christian, your body will as well. So hang in there and abide. Why would you want to give up on that? And the best of us don't begin to realize what it's like to have a glorified body. I don't. C.S. Lewis, in fact, said, he wrote... Uh, if any one of us were to see the future version of ourselves, we would be inclined to bow down and worship. It's going to be great. And when do we get that body? When Christ comes back. Now, the second thing is really, I think, more where John is going. I put that one out there just because it's too great not to talk about. <laughs> I don't think it's primarily what John has in mind here. His focus is not the physical. His focus is more the ethical, okay? The moral and the ethical. The false teachers were basically saying, hey, you're under the grace of God. Go out and enjoy sin. It's no big deal. John said, no, it is a big deal. They said, no, it's not a big deal. And they took people that wanted it not to be a big deal. And boy, it's not hard to get people to follow you when you say, hey, you know what? Your sin isn't a big deal. I want you as my pastor. I will tithe to you. I'll be faithful at church every week. I love what you're saying. But John said, your life matters now. Your ethical life matters now. And if you're a child of God, like father, like son, you're going to seek to live in obedience to him, and you're going to seek to live a righteous life. Now, how does this work? Well, we know that when we are when we, are, when we believe, when we trust in Jesus, that my, my sins are forgiven and the power of sin is broken in my life. Prior to salvation, I am, Romans says, I am a slave to sin. But now with the Spirit of God in me and this new heart and new nature, I, am no, I no longer have to do what sin calls me to do. I have a new capacity now. I can actually do what is right. And I have a desire within to do what is right. I still have the desire to do what is wrong, which is part of that tension that we have, but I can now fulfill righteousness. I can now obey the Lord. I can read the Bible and say, I'm, I'm going to do that. And I can fulfill the will of God. So the power of sin was broken in salvation. Sadly though, as Christians, the presence of sin is still here, isn't it? Think about your last week. Perhaps think about your drive to church this morning. We have sin in our life. If you hung out with me very long, you would see in me attitude, selfishness, pride, things that come out from that. And if I hung out with you, I'd probably see a lot worse. (laughs) What does it mean when Christ returns? It will mean... These spiritual hypocrisies and contradictions 
these guilty conscience, these bitternesses about God's providential turns and twists in life, these greed, these anger, all these things that even as Christians we feel in us and it creates such conflict and pain in our life that when Christ returns, we will be changed. And what that means is it will be instant, total sanctification inside. I will shed the old nature. I will shed the presence of sin. I will get rid of what a guilty conscience feels like. I'm going to get rid of that desire to give in to temptation. In that moment, suddenly, gone it is in my life. And in that moment, now fully, totally, all I want is God. My heart is fully made like Adam's was before the fall. And I will never, ever again want to sin. The old will be gone and the new will completely be here. The text says that we will be like him. We will be completely pure in every way as Jesus is completely pure. No sin nature. No temptation. No besetting sin. Never the dirty feeling of sin in our hearts ever again. We will be changed. We will be completely sanctified. We will be completely whole as Jesus is holy, pure. And I would say to you that I think that that's a bigger deal than we realize. Because all we've ever known is this. So we can't even fathom what it's like to not have this. Even as I talk about it, I, it sounds great, but I can't even, I don't know what it's like to not have all of this junk in my life. But someday I will know what that is like. And from that moment, total pure love, which is what I was made for. You see how God is restoring what sin broke? We're still in the image of God. Sin corrupts that. But in salvation, God completely restores that. And we will experience for eternity the full capacity of human image bearing for love for God and love for one another and joy. Psalm 16, 11 again, in thy presence is fullness of joy. And we don't even know what that's like. We're sad every day. But someday, never again, we will be changed. And so there is a great truth in verse 2 here. And I hope that it's sitting out in front of you in a way that you're saying, you know what, why would I give up on Christ? Why would I give up on This week following the Lord. Why would I miss that? That sounds great to me. It is there for all who abide. All who persevere in the faith. Now, that basically was my introduction. Because the real point is verse 3. In fact, one theologian I deeply respect says, if you don't think verse 3 is the point, you have no business spending any time in verse 2. Because what John is doing here is not just putting something out so we feel good and think, okay, when I die, everything's going to be fine. Or when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be fine. There is a point to what he is saying. Remember, in his church, there were people that were still thinking, well, maybe the false teachers were right. And I don't have to think very 
seriously about sin in my life. I can kind of just have my Christianity, and when I die, all this comes and, and it, 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 it helps me. Uh, but for now, I can enjoy the season of sin. It's going to be great. John says, no. No, no, no. What does he say in verse 3? And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. Now, I added that, but that's what he's saying. Whoever has the hope then purifies himself now, even as he is pure. Jesus is pure. So what is John's big point here? If we desire the future, purity, holiness, if that really is what we want, then that will not be something that we simply push off. It will be something that we want now. If we want it then, we will want it now. And what he's doing here is he's pointing out the hypocrisy of anybody that would say, Oh, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be great. Oh, may the trumpet sound. I, 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 can't, I can't wait to behold him. It's going to be so wonderful to be made like him and, and to have all of the glory of that purity to be part of my life. Oh, it's going to be wonderful someday, but for now. Oh, you know what? Let's enjoy this season of sin because someday we don't get to do it anymore. Right? So I better sow my wild oats now. Because in heaven, there's no more fun. Is that a thought that only exists or existed in the first century church? Or are there people who view their Christianity as something that will save them in the future, but they have very little interest in seeking after righteousness and holiness in their life now. And John says, you can't do that. If that is your hope then, then this is your priority now. I mean, imagine... Imagine Jesus coming back. This is the mentality. Jesus comes, suddenly he appears and there's Christians going, oh man, can't do that no more. You see the like stupidity of that, right? If his, if he is your hope, then who he is and what he is, is your, is your hope now and is your priority now. You know, one way to look at this is that, in a sense, God gives everybody forever what they want. Everybody gets what they want forever. God just gives us what we want. So that if, for example, now you don't really want God in your life, guess what? God will give you an eternity without him. Oh, that's what you wanted? Good. You can have that now forever. No God. If what you want now is sin and unrighteousness and that sort of mind thinking about corrupt things, God gives you that freedom to do that forever. If you're all about unholiness and the priorities of the world now, God just says, hey, you know what? You can have that forever. By the same token, if what I want now is I want God, God gives us that forever. If what I want now is I want, I want worship and I, I, I desire 
uh, the things of God, God gives that to us forever. That's called heaven. The other's called hell. Everybody gets in the end what you want. But our desires now reveal, and this is the big point now, our desires now reveal the true spiritual condition of our heart. First John is a big letter about how to know whether you're a Christian or not. And what he says now is you can look, trace your desires. Is there a desire for God or not? Don't listen to your words or look at your church attendance or the stars next to your Sunday school attendance record when you were in third grade. Look at your heart. Is there a desire for God or not? And he's about to argue in verses four and following that those that are born of God will not continue in sin. They can't. They're children of God. They have his DNA like father, like son. So examine your heart. And as we do that, what do we see? We see sin. I've already talked about that. We see sin. We see regret. We see daily things where we do not live up to what we aspire to. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is without sin. First John 1 8. So that is true. But the question is, is there also there a desire to do the will of God? And the only explanation for a sinner desiring to do the will of God is that he has been changed. And we live in the contradiction of those two things. But if the one is not there, you can say that you're looking forward to Jesus coming, but you're not. Because it'll mean the absence of all the things you actually live for in this life. We will be changed when he comes. I think of the old hymn, Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, precious Redeemer, pure as thou art. That's the cry of the Christian, right? We cry for it because we don't have it yet, but we want it. We want it. So do you see the point here, Christian? Are you tracking with me? Look at the heart. Look at the future. Think about what that means. Do I view that as a good thing? Do I view that as something that I want then? And if I want it then, I will want it now. And as I see that wanting it now, I think to myself, where did that come from? Because I don't naturally want that now. I naturally want the other thing now. I must be a child of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on me that he would give me these desires to live out my identity as a child of God. It's an assurance to us. So once again, here in 1 John, we're at the same point. If you hear this message and you say to yourself, you know what, I don't have any desires to do the will of God. My life reveals the fact that I have no desires to do the will of God. What should I do? Receive Christ as your Savior and experience that change. And if you are looking at yourself and you're saying, you know what, it's kind of me, I'm schizo. I take three steps forward, two steps back. But I have to say, honestly, as I assess my life, I do have the will of God. I do want to do what what God wants. Then take that assurance and be encouraged. You're a child of God. And someday Christ is coming back. And all that junk that you're like, I wish that wasn't there, will be gone. And that body will be glorified. And you will experience in that moment your greatest moment ever when he appears. And then we will spend eternity with him and we will get all the things that we want because he is our love and our treasure and we get him forever. 
and a lot of other things as well. And there lies the assurance and the encouragement to hang in there and to not give up and to walk faithfully with God. I'll end with the quoting the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it's enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. Indeed, that is our hope. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that uh, your word and your spirit would accomplish your work. And I pray, God, for all here, all of us, to be truly followers of Christ and to be under your grace. And God, I pray that you would save us completely. I pray, God, for any here who are um, playing the game religious, trying to be self-righteous. Lord, I pray that they would just quit that and receive a salvation offered freely from you. May they put their hope and their trust in Christ. And may we be a church, while imperfect, that strongly desires to be holy. And in doing so, to anticipate the day when we will be completely holy and to long for it. So we thank you, we love you, and we offer ourselves to you again on this Sunday as an act of worship. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for a